The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the content providers and should not be viewed as an endorsement of any product or service. Nor does it reflect the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Good afternoon, everybody. And welcome to the Seeing Eyes presentation. I am Chelsea White. I'm outreach for the Seeing Eye, and I am joined by Dave Johnson and Melissa Allman, and I will let them introduce themselves. I'm Dave Johnson. I'm the Director of Instruction and Training here at the Seeing Eye, and uh, my world includes, obviously, what I just said, instruction and training of dogs and our students and admissions, nursing, outreach, and uh, advocacy. Melissa? Hi. Uh, oh, sorry. You said advocacy, and I just chimed right in. I apologize. Yeah. No, go ahead. <laughs> um, hi, I am Melissa Allman. I'm the advocacy and government relations specialist, and that my world includes things such as providing our graduates and our students with information about their access rights with their dogs in public, housing, employment, air travel, various contexts, and also providing them with, with resources if they think their rights have been violated in terms of what they where they can go, what they might do about it. Um, I also do some spokesperson work with our Department of Donor and Public Relations on some messaging and making sure we're getting important messages out regarding seeing eye dogs and guide dogs in general. And what we do here, I do trainings on service animal related issues and outreach presentations. And I also do some legislative and policy work as necessary to support our graduates. Fantastic. And I introduced myself, but I didn't kind of share about what I do. I'm outreach so I do a lot of stuff like this. Um, I travel the country typically, and and now these days do Zoom stuff as well, uh, sharing, educating folks on dog guides in general, kind of how they work and what they do and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then more specific information about the seeing eye and our program and kind of how we operate and what we do and that kind of thing. So I also uh, assist with ONM seminars. We provide uh, training about dog guides to uh, orientation and mobility instructors who are coming into the field. Uh, so we usually do a one to two day seminar, depending on the university, uh, about dog guides in general. Um, so the ONMs kind of have a sense of, you know, what dog guides are and how they work and all that kind of thing. So and those are the two main, main parts of my job. So with that said, uh, I will start us off and give you a little bit of information about the Seeing Eye, about our program. Uh, for those of you who are on that don't know, uh, we are located in Morristown, New Jersey. And um, we are about, we are one of about 14 schools around the United States and Canada that train dogs as guides for people who are blind or visually impaired. We do the whole process of that training of the dog and training with the person. So we do all of our own breeding. Um, we breed primarily German Shepherds, Labrador Retrievers, Golden Retrievers, and then we also cross the lab with the Golden. Um, we've had our own breeding program now for, oh, forever. It seems like, um, we have a geneticist on staff who is a full-time employee and that is her job. 
uh, is to keep track of genetics and and do all that geneticist sort of stuff that is way above anything I understand. So, but we do our own breeding uh, for a couple of reasons. One, um, we purpose breed, so we breed for the work. Um, and also through breeding, we have virtually eliminated some of the health issues that are very common in the general population of the breeds of dogs that I mentioned, hip dysplasia being one of them. Um, we just don't see it in our dogs uh, because we, we breed, you know, have bred away from it over the years. So we do all of our own breeding. We have a very well-established puppy raising program. Dog guides need to, you know, if you, if you have, you know, a little puppy and you keep him in a kennel for a year, uh, they're not going to make good guide dogs um, because they won't have seen the world. They, they need to see the world and, and learn to behave in that world and learn to learn. Uh, in order to make a good dog guide. So when they're about eight weeks old, they go to a puppy raiser and uh, typically a family. Uh, we like our dogs to be exposed to children and other animals and that sort of thing. So we, we try really hard to put our puppies in families uh, with children and other animals. And so they go to that puppy raiser and that family for the next uh, year-ish or or so, uh, they typically come back to us when they're somewhere around 14 months old, but they teach basic obedience, you know, sit, come when called, um, they get the lovely job of housebreaking, um, you know, not chewing up furniture and, and that kind of stuff. Uh, so they, they get that fun job. Uh, they also socialize. So I mentioned, you know, dogs need to see the world. So they expose the puppy to riding in the car and maybe riding on the bus and going to the shopping mall and going to Walmart and the grocery store and all of those places that you as a blind or visually impaired person would go on, you know, in your daily life. Um, they expose the puppy to those places so that the puppy gets used to being in those places and behaving in those places. So in a restaurant, the puppy is down under the table, under a chair, out of the way. You know, they're not sitting in your lap, eating from your plate. Um, they're not wandering around the restaurant, you know, begging for food from other people. They're down and they're quiet. When the dog is about, uh, about 14 months old or so, give or take, they come back to us at the seeing eye. And that's where they go through their dog guide training. That's where they learn to be a seeing eye dog. And that's when they learn to, to do their guide work. So they learn to stop at curbs and steps. They learn to avoid obstacles. So to get you and them around that stuff in your environment that you would run, it could run into trip over. Um, so, you know, light poles, garbage cans, uh, other pedestrians, all that stuff that's out there. Uh, they're taught to avoid avoid that. They're taught the directional commands of left, right, and forward. Uh, and they're also taught intelligent disobedience, which basically says if, if the situation that you would be going into is not safe, the dog would refuse the command of forward. So that, that very quickly is, is what kind of what, you know, we do as far as dog training, pretty standard across the board from all the schools. 
We will definitely try to leave some time for questions here in just a little bit, but I'd like to get through uh, Dave and Melissa as well. So, but um, a little bit about us specifically. Um, we, like I said, Morristown, New Jersey. Um, our program is primarily um, you come to us for training. Um, if you have not had a dog from us before, the training is is almost four weeks. That's like three days shy of, of four weeks. That's 25 days. Uh, if you have had a dog from us before it, your training is a week shorter. Um, for a first time handler, uh, we uh, ask that somebody come to us and go through training with us. Um, if you have had a dog from us before, um, that opens uh, two more programs to you as options for training. Um, one is what we call home and away and home and away is where you come to us initially. Uh, so you come in, uh, get matched with your dog, do the first, Oh, 10 days or so of training uh, in Morristown and then go home with an instructor and finish up your training at home. Uh, we also do offer a home training, home training as well. Uh, again, for folks who have had dogs from us before, um, and that's where we would bring the dog to you wherever it is you live and do all of the training in your home environment. So um, we do charge a small fee for the dog. Um, it is $150 for your first dog. It's $50 for every dog after that. Um, and if you are a veteran, uh, it's a dollar. We charge the fee because, you know, we give ownership of the dog to you when you complete training. So you come to us, you get matched with your dog, you go through training, everything's great. You're heading home. That dog is, is legally and literally your property. Uh, we maintain no level of ownership to the dog whatsoever. So, you know, that's, Part of the reason that we charge that fee is, you know, you pay for something, it's yours. So um, also, you know, it, it, uh, um, you know, typically if people put in a little bit of money towards something, the value of that thing tends to be a little higher. So, so that is, that is pretty much us in a very quick nutshell. Um, uh, another question I get quite a bit is age, uh, limits and requirements and all that kind of stuff. Um, the youngest we typically will accept anybody is 16. Um, we really don't have an upper age limit per se. Um, if somebody is, you know, 78 years old and, and they're still fairly active and, you know, they're getting out there and going and doing, uh, then a dog is, you know, definitely a possibility. So, that is, that is pretty much us. Melissa, if you would like to talk a little bit about what we've been doing advocacy wise, I will turn it over to you. Certainly. So we have a couple of things going on right now this year that are, that are interesting, some kind of longer term projects. One of those that one of the things that we're doing right now to support our graduates and of course our students as well, but primarily people who are going out into the world and now are looking at how they're going to best advocate for themselves with our support, of course, as they handle their dogs. One of the things that we're doing is developing an app 
that will provide people with the information they need concerning their rights as guide dog handlers in various types of contexts, such as public places, air travel, um, employment settings, in some cases, educational settings where that information is available, housing, any place where we might go with our dogs, we're trying to provide information about a person's rights so that they can easily and quickly access the information. You know, maybe you're, we are mobile. We are, we are out living our lives. We are not always chained to our computers. We don't always have our laptops in front of us or attached to us. And not everybody has a computer. And I recognize that not everyone has a smartphone either, but many of us do. And many of us are accessing and looking to access information that way on the fly. So what this app aims to do is make it easy for you as handlers. And really it's it's going to be available in the app store. So if somebody who is a is a public entity or has another role but would like to learn information concerning their responsibilities and their rights as well, this app would be available. So we have information about federal laws both in the United States and Canada. Now even there may be situations where it's more efficient to provide guidance or information about a law that someone would be able to access and move through quickly rather than the law itself. And we've endeavored to do that where that's available. So for example, there are some federal guidelines on, on housing. There are service animal regulations um, implemented by the Department of Justice concerning the ADA that reference regulations, but their guidance that is um, you know, that is is important to follow and um, courts do defer to them. So um, it's, it's easy to read and, and people can reference that. So we have the federal laws, we have state laws, we also have a section of and provincial laws and U.S. territory laws as well. And then we have a section um, for educational materials that contains things such as our Guide Dog at Work campaign that provides information about people, gives information that people can provide to people with pet dogs about appropriate etiquette of their dogs and of other people around guide dog teams. You know, the educational materials also contain a taxi flyer. And then the state laws are very vast and significant. And the Canadian provincial laws are kind of a significant uh, part of it because they're so, so numerous and, and there's a lot of it. So what we are trying to do, what we've done is organized it by topic. So if you look at your state, you'll see that depending on every state's laws, because they vary, you might be able to find information about your access rights in public places. And then you might be able to find information about your rights in housing or employment or, um, thing, or protection from interference. Depending on what the state has available, we've tried to categorize things. And then we have, you know, we're going to have the statute because states, you know, that's that's just kind of how it is. You have to reference the state law. And but above that, we're providing basic summaries of this is the law concerning, you know, housing in Nebraska. And it covers assistance, animal fraud and so on and so forth. Or this is the public access law in in um, X state. And in this state, service animal trainers are covered and it is a criminal offense to deny someone access and so on and so forth. And then we have the source where we obtain the law so that 
If anything changes, you can go directly to that source or if you need to print out something more official, and then it's going to have a search icon. We are in, you know, one of the things, this has been a great learning experience for me, working with developers and experiencing the intricacies that go into developing an app. And we are doing some very close internal testing at the moment. Um, The app has gone through multiple iterations. We're at a point where where we're getting closer to finalizing that. And then we're going to kind of expand our testing a little bit. So stay tuned because we are, this is a, this is a continuing work in progress. We know that once it is released into the app store, that people are going to find things about it that they like, that they don't like. We know that we're going to get a lot of uh, very valuable feedback. So that's something that, um, that we will continue to keep you posted on. The other thing that we're doing that we're continuing to work on is our law enforcement education campaign. I think that uh, we've seen recently a number of articles that in, that are written by reporters in different states about situations where handlers have experienced some sort of attack or interference or access denial and they have reached out to law enforcement for assistance and have learned that law enforcement has not received appropriate training on issues pertaining to guide dog handlers, you know, in particular the laws that are there to protect us. And so those laws do us absolutely no good if there's nobody enforcing them. Attack and aggressive interference is still a problem, just like it was 10 years ago. When we did our first survey, we did another survey in 2019 that shows us that we still have a lot of work to do. And one of the things that needs to be done is to develop a robust law enforcement education campaign. We have our work cut out for us in this area. We are starting in New Jersey. We're developing a pilot program for police officers, and we are getting closer to finalizing that. We have the support of officers in in our county, and we've gotten enthusiastic um, sort of response when we reached out to law enforcement. So our goal is to pilot it close to home for a while and then get feedback from them about what's working, what's not working, then expand it to the entire state. And then if we find that it's been successful and we need to tweak and tailor things, our goal is to expand it to additional states beyond that. You know, we're obviously, that's going to be a significant undertaking that does not have a timeline because that could take years, but it's worth the effort. It's it's what we're, we need to be doing. And of course, that will depend on various states because um, you know we may get support in some states, we may not. And we may be reaching out to people who have connections in law enforcement in various states as that time goes on. And of course, state laws are not all the same. So it's not like we can create this cookie cutter law enforcement education campaign that worked in New Jersey. So therefore, it's going to work in in Texas. You know, laws, the state laws, the the federal law is the same, but the state laws are different. So this is something that we'll probably have hopefully some update for you on every year because this is not a short-term undertaking. So in addition to my general overview of my duties, this is what we are um, working on specifically in terms of projects. What I would also say is that we are continuing to keep an eye on what the airlines are doing. 
I would strongly suggest that anyone, air travel is ramping up and things continue to change. The regulations, the Department of Just, uh, excuse me, the Department of Transportation regulations are, the, are what they are. Those have not changed, but airlines do have a little bit of latitude in how they implement those. And there, I think, have been some improvements in the airlines in how they do that and how they streamline that process as a result of our voices being heard. So one example I can tell you about is that, um, of course, we've got American and Alaskan airlines that have the service animal ID that you can create based on your dog's vaccination record and the expiration date of that. They, they each do it a little bit differently. But one of the things that I've observed is that other airlines like United and JetBlue, I believe, have uh, been able to set it up so that when you upload your form, your the user interface includes an HTML format of the form. So it's when you're doing it, it's not it doesn't start out as a PDF like we were dealing with. There's an HTML version of it, um, and then once you have completed the form in that way, it can upload it. It creates it as a PDF so that you're the one typing in the HTML and then it becomes a PDF that you can upload. So I know that airlines are moving more and more toward that. There's still work to be done. I know Southwest is still having you bring your form to the gate. And I don't believe that any of the airlines are allowing you to, um, and they don't, and the guidelines, the, the web content accessibility guidelines and the regulations don't require them to, um, but I don't believe that any of the airlines have been able to integrate this uh, form into their apps yet. If someone sees that, though, do let me know because I'll be very curious about that. But what I would strongly advise us all to do as we prepare to travel is to, before you make your reservations, before you go through all that, just take a quick Google search of your airline's service animal policy or you know, traveling on Delta with a service animal or on United or however you wanna put it in, you will get a link to that airline's service animal page and you can educate yourself about how they are doing it, how they're applying the regulations, where you can go to, to upload the to download and then upload the form or complete the form so that when you speak to somebody at the accessibility desk, should you need their assistance, you are empowered and informed in the event that what they're saying doesn't make sense to you or should you, you know, get wrong information, which happens sometimes. That's the best way we can educate ourselves about this. So that's what I have to say. I will stop and make room for Dave to talk now. Well, thanks, Melissa. Um I'm gonna take some time here to, to go through a history lesson about the, the organization and how we started and, and how we got to where we are today um, and dealing a little bit with the pandemic as well. But back in the 1920s, uh, there was an extraordinary woman named Dorothy Harrison Eustace. And Dorothy was from Philadelphia, but she was living in Vevey, Switzerland, where she had an estate that she called Fortunate Fields. And Dorothy had a very keen interest in the German Shepherd breed. And, you know, we think, oh, German Shepherds, everybody thinks as a German Shepherd as a guide. But believe it or not, back in the 1920s, the breed was not that well established. 
Um, they were still working on, on establishing the breed and Dorothy was interested in it. She had a particular interest in a dog named Hans. And it, you know, I joke about this all the time because uh, when I look at Hans, I don't see a very handsome German Shepherd. I see something that might've had Corgi in it. So anyway, Dorothy was w working on the breed and she was very interested in, in the working aspects of the breed. She was breeding, raising and training dogs for the Swiss army. And she was approached by the Saturday Evening Post to write an article about herself and what she was doing with her dogs. And Dorothy being the person that she was did not really wanna talk about what she was doing or about herself. Um, she instead deflected um, and wrote a story about how the Germans were using her favorite breed, the German Shepherd, to train guides to guide wounded war veterans. Now, this was World War I, and the reason why we were guiding so many people who were blind back then was because of the use of mustard gas. And mustard gas not only blinded the enemy, but it was indiscriminate, and it blinded the Germans as well if they were in the path of their own gas. Um, despite the fact that they used masks on horses, dogs themselves, there were still blinded veterans. And so she had observed them training. It, it was rather primitive. It had not been done before. And she wrote this article about the Potsdam School uh, in the Saturday Evening Post. And we have that displayed here at the Seeing Eye, her article, and it has photographs of what they were doing with the dogs at the time. Now, the whole story is rather serendipitous because what Dorothy was trying to do was deflect interest from what she was doing. Instead, she exploded uh, interest in what she was doing because um, American families read the story in the Saturday Evening Post and they shared the stories with their blind and visually impaired children and relatives, spouses. And she received around 200 letters from Americans who begged her to train one of those dogs for them. And it was a letter from one particular individual that caught her interest the most. Um, and that individual was Morris Frank. And the reason Morris's letter uh, attracted her was his approach to the whole thing, which was he said that if he, she were to train him such a dog, that he would bring it back to the United States and he would show everybody what the dogs were capable of doing. And he would find a way to start the school here so that other Americans could, could have the same service that he would have received. So she, she kindly accepted Morris's uh, attempt to come over for a dog and they went to work training dogs and worked on getting Morris over there. Now, Morris was a tough guy. He was blinded in youth, um, horseback riding. And um, at this point, I'm not sure whether he took a stick to the eye or whether it was maybe a branch to the head and a retinal detachment. Um, but he lost the vision in his second eye in a boxing accident as a teen. And he was trying to be independent. He was selling insurance door to door in Nashville, Tennessee, where he lived. And there were no services or very few services for the blind back then. Um, 
Canes didn't come along till the cane travel didn't come along till the nine, 1940s, really official cane travel. And so he was relying on sighted guides and Morris's MO would be to hire um, kids to take him sighted guide door to door. And the, the kids uh, quickly learned that they could Shanghai him. They could take him to a door, let him knock on the door. They'd have his money and they'd take off and leave him there. And he'd be stranded without any services. And it really ticked him off. So the prospect of having a dog was, was great to him. Getting him to over to Switzerland was another obstacle because there were no uh, ships that really wanted to take responsibility for a person who was blind on board. They were sure that he was going to fall overboard or something horrible was going to ha happen to him. And long story short, through a lot of shenanigans, it was figured out that they could ship him uh, Federal Express over to Switzerland. And, and that's how he was able to, to get there for the training. Um, Dorothy's husband, um, Walter Wood, and her geneticist, Jack Humphrey, had trained the dogs she had. And Jack was brilliant. He had observed the Germans. He uh, wrote most of the protocols and, and training manuals for the dogs that we train today. And we have evolved from Jack's teachings. So Jack had taught two dogs and, and her husband had trained two dogs. And Morris was matched with a dog named Kiss. And Morris being the guy that he was had met this dog and said, I ain't having no Kiss, no dog named Kiss. And so he changed her name to Buddy. And Morris had six buddies, um, all female except for buddy number three, which was a male. And um, he was trained there in Veve, and we have pretty extensive footage uh, that Dor Dorothy filmed all of the training of Morris um, over there in Switzerland. And it, it makes me tingle just to talk about it because I watch how Buddy worked. And while the traffic was not what it is today here, it was absolutely sensational to watch this dog traffic checking and, and also working around horses and carriages um, and managing life back then when no one else had really done this in, in great numbers. Of course, I said the Germans did it, but nobody independently, no private entity had done it. So Morris, um, as, as he finished his training, there was uh, a well-known meeting between him and Jack and Dorothy. And uh, Dorothy told him that Buddy wasn't going to be any good to him if he came back here to the United States and couldn't go anywhere with her. And, and he said, well, why would I be able to go anywhere? And Dorothy explained, if you think it through, Morris, there are no laws to protect you. Um, people don't know what this dog is capable of doing, you're, you're gonna be an oddity. So Morris vowed that he was going to uh, fight for the rights, his own rights, and th those going forward, he was the really the very first advocate for guide dogs in the United States. He came back here, he was put to many challenges, and he uh, was known for sneaking Buddy in and out of restaurants if he could. Um, Long white tablecloths were very common in restaurants then. He liked to sneak her in, get her under the table, 
and have no one know she was there until he left. And then he made sure everybody saw him leave so that, so that they would know that the dog could lie quietly under a table. On the times where he did get caught, he was known for taking, for giving in and taking the say, okay, I'll tie her up outside. Back in, in those days, in, in the late twenties, he uh, was taught to travel with a short cane or staff for probing rather than using uh, one's foot to probe for a curb. He used the short cane and Morris would come back into the restaurant and, and act way more blind than he, than he possibly was. And he would tumble tables, clear, clear plates, and they would beg him to go back and get the dog so that he could eat peacefully in the restaurant and stop disheveling the restaurant. That was one of his MOs for getting interest in, in what he was doing. He was stopped from getting on a train um, in Philadelphia at one point. And the conductor's like, you can't get on there with that dog. And he said, I'm not getting on with her. She's getting me on. And he jumped on the train and took off. Um, so, so he really fought his way through it. He was a, a tough man. He didn't like taking no for an answer. True to his word, Morris and Dorothy established the Seeing Eye in uh, January of 1929 in Nashville, Tennessee. And the Seeing Eye started there, uh, the first in the country, very humbly. And dogs were trained and classes were held in local hotels, uh, small classes of four people. And Dorothy's philosophy, which we stand by today, um, Chelsea talked about it a little bit, was that people should contribute towards their ownership um, and their rehabilitation. Uh, people who were blind in the 20s were not thought of on the same level um, with the same high, it was almost a caste system, not thought of in the same level as people who were sighted. And she felt that by contributing to the the ownership of the dog that the person had purchased it and it said something uh, to the constitution of the person. And, and we've, we've lived by that um, for our entire history. She wanted to change the, uh, the image of people who are blind um, back in our early days, our students and, and up until the early nineties, our students dressed for meals for lunchtime meal, knowing that the CNI frequently entertained people from different agencies. And so ladies were asked to wear a dress to lunch, gentlemen wear a tie. So that figuring that their next employer could be in the dining room at that time and, and meet them. Um, we've done away with the formalities. We used to use surnames because because people who were blind were often referred to as people like things like old blind Joe and things like that. So we used surnames, Mr. and Mrs. And we've done away with that tradition as well. But, but still, um, we like to uh, hold everybody to the same standards. So the school was started down in, in Nashville, and they quickly realized that the temperatures in Nashville were, were just too extreme for training dogs year round. And the decision was to was made to move the school up to New Jersey. Um, our original property was in Whippany, New, Jer New Jersey, which is about eh, three, four miles outside of Morristown. And it was an 86 or 88 acre estate. It, it held what we called the main house, which was a large Victorian 
home, which was which was the school itself, and uh, the breeding and training dogs were all on the property as well. Everything was on one large property. And back in that era, there were two instructors training eight students apiece. Uh, can't imagine how it happened like that back then. Um, we didn't have an extensive breeding colony going, and we were frequently training dogs that uh, were donated to us. Um, I started here at the CNI in 1984, and uh, for the first oh, 10 or 11 years of my training career here, uh, quite a bit of our, our uh, training strings were comprised of dogs that had been donated by people as opposed to dogs that we bred. We now breed everything ourselves. But anyway, Dorothy was smart enough to start the school and, and get the CNI going there, but she also started the groundwork for uh, an endowment uh, for the school to exist off of and developed a prominent board of trustees that would run the organization, uh, guide the organization. Um, there was a plethora of instructors, some from Europe. We were based very often on um, people who came out of the military, mostly the early instructors. Although there were some early women, most of the instructors for a very long time were males who came out of the armed services, had experience uh, training dogs in the armed service and were looking for work when they got out of the armed services. So I'm gonna fast forward up into the 60s where uh, the CNI was outgrowing Whippany. We needed a breeding center. Um, we needed to change things. And this property here in Morristown was, was purchased. The original property was 150 acres. Uh, we now sit on roughly 65. It's a little less than 65 acres. And everyone would say, well, what happened to the other 100 acres? Um, that land was taken by the state. It's still wide open property, but they were going to flood this valley that we live on the rim of. It's called Washington Valley, named after George Washington. They were going to flood it to make a reservoir out of it. And so it stands as buffer between us and neighbors now. Um, so we have had a number of iterations um, of the property and updates of kennels. Everything is pretty much up to date now on, on this main property. We have a large breeding station, breeding center um, on, uh, on 300 and close to 350 acres, uh, about a eh, 15 minute drive from the CNI campus. So we were doing really, really well. Excuse me a second. I have to let a cat in my office. Hold on. Cat is banging at the door. Nobody thought we had seeing on cats, did you? So um, where was I? We were getting going. Where was I, Melissa? What did I say I don't last? Know, but I think you need to explain. I think before you talk about the breeding station, which is, I believe, where you were, I think you should talk about the seeing eye cats. Uh, we have three cats that live on campus that they are hired to harass seeing eye dogs. Um, they serve as distraction. We don't really have feral cats or loose cats in Morristown. And it's really good practice for our dogs to work around cats, especially if people live with cats. So the cats run free on Rome three through free through the building. And my office happens to be home base and they, they don't just knock on the door. They beat on my door if it's closed and they want in. I was back in the sixties here in this property. 
we had a small breeding station in, in Mendham, New Jersey up until 19, uh, 1990, I guess, I think, or around 2000, maybe, sorry, 2000. And when we moved it to the Chester property, our endowment has been something that has supported us over the years. The seeing eye was so well healed with funding that in the 1960s, we became a granting organization where we were actually giving away money. Um, We were funding studies uh, in blindness. Uh, We were studying funding studies in dog, dog health and so on. And we actually stopped taking donations. We told the public, whoa, don't give us money. We'll just send it back. We're really, really good. And it came to a point, we, we were part of a filming project with Walt Disney in, in the 60s, um, an, an old movie that some might know called At a Girl Kelly. And when Walt introduces the, the dog and himself at the beginning of the mini movie, he talks about, don't send the seeing eye money, they'll send it back. Um, I have always believed that that was a really good way for the other schools to get some some monetary starts um, if people were really uh, interested in donating towards this cause that they could actually give it to other schools if they were willing to take it. Fast forward into the 70s where things started to change and the CNI started fundraising again. Um, There are parameters on how much money the CNI can spend out of the endowment and therefore Today, when our budgets are something like $28 million, we can't draw all that out of the endowments. We can only take a small percentage, so we fundraise to raise the rest, um, as does the rest of the world. We're all fighting for the same, same donor dollars. We take no government funding whatsoever. Moving forward, we've, we've increased emphasis on, on some some emphasis on fundraising and we got into recent history where there our endowment took crashes like everyone else's money has with the investment markets crashing and uh, we came to a point in oh 2010 through through 2012 i would say where money was tight where we were spending too much we'd grown too big a staff and we had to, to make some adjustments to make sure that the CNI would be here in perpetuity. So we had a downsizing of staff, which righted the ship. Um, at that time, it, it had to be done. Uh, no one liked it, that's for darn sure, but it had to be done and the, we're in good financial health as a result today. So um, what makes us different? Um, in the 1980s, when I started here, we had a consulting geneticist and he closed Eldon Layton for those who might know him by name. And he closed our breeding colony and, you know, anybody who doesn't know goes, well, what's that mean? We used to take dogs from different breeders and use them as our breeding stock as long as they met our criteria. Instead, we closed our breeding program so that we were only breeding from the dogs that we had and we were selecting for the traits that we wanted and Eldon, in his genius, brought to, brought to our uh, lives something called estimated breeding values, or EBVs, we call them. And 
I'll, I'll make it easy and just say it's assigning numbers to traits. Let's say there's 10 traits, health, temperament, go on down the line that you want to select for. And you, you assign the highest number to the, the animals that uh, have the attributes you desire the most. And at that time, we were looking to eliminate hip dysplasia. We were seeing large numbers of dogs rejected because their hips weren't that great. All the breeds, shepherds, labs, goldens. And he quickly put us back in order and we've all but eliminated hip dysplasia from our breeding program as a result of using estimated breeding values. We've selected for manageability, um, temperament, you name it. Um, what, what we call stability in the dog is a dog that's pretty bulletproof. Most of our dogs can go almost anywhere these days, but having a genetic on, geneticist on board has served us in many, many ways. Um, we've always been active in supporting health needs for dogs. In 1995, um, a graduate happened to be somebody that I trained, called us because he had had an accident with his dog, which his dog had guided him into a swimming pool um, in the dark one evening. And that's just not normal behavior for an eight-year-old dog. They don't make those mistakes. And we urged at our expense to have that dog checked out and found that the dog had a condition, an eye condition called progressive retinal atrophy, PRA. And so we immediately notified all of our graduates who had Labradors that they should have their dogs seen by a veterinary ophthalmologist at our expense so that we could check out what was going on with all our Labradors. Because once we knew we had PRA in our lines and it does cause blindness, it's it's very similar to, to um, RP in human beings. It starts out with not being able to see well at night, sensitivity to light and not being able to see it well at night, and then leads to total blindness. We were lucky to find out that there were only eight dogs in of our, I don't know, 16 to 1700 dogs guiding. There were only eight affected dogs and we urged those graduates to replace those dogs and we did. We also started breeding lab golden crosses that year, which totally eliminated the potential for RP while we worked on studying RP and le learning about it. And um, through our studies here, Dr. Gus Aguirre was able, and through Eldon Layton, Dr. Gus Aguirre was able to uh, determine the genes for PRA. We've eliminated, eliminated it from Labradors or we can identify it so that we don't breed it. And um, it, it was a really big deal, not just for us, but for other schools around the world and for people with pets because they've now found the gene in many, many, many breeds, if not all. I'm not, I'm not certain about that. So uh, fast forward more, um, our, we, we were led by this board of trustees, all um, really geniuses in their own right, in their own fields, and have a couple very well-known veterinarians on our, our board. And they advised us, uh, I think over 20 years ago now, to start storing DNA on all our dogs, which means we, we store, we take a blood sample and spin it down, store the DR, DNA um, in, you know, deep freeze, just, just so that we have the DNA and we know what we've got for a rainy day. And 
just this last year, about a year ago, I think, um, we do extensive screening on all of our dogs for health problems. And there's, there's certain test panels and they added a test panel for Stargardt's and Stargardt's a lot. Some of you might have Stargardt's as humans, um, but Stargardt's causes um, partial vision and eventually blindness can cause eventual total blindness. Usually there's a, a loose, a loss of central vision uh, with Stargardt's. And when, when they added this to the panel, we went and used the information from that panel and the DNA stored in our in our banks here to find out how it affected us because we didn't know. And we found out, again, the magic number eight. There were eight affected dogs. Thank God, only eight. Um, and uh, some of them had not been trained and those dogs we rejected. And the dogs that were working Many of them we examined here uh, in a number of ways, and I worked them personally um, to assess their work, and we found all of them to be compromised. So we advised uh, immediate retirement to all our grads who had dogs with with uh, Stargarts, and we have replaced those. Uh, I think there's still one person waiting to replace, but anyway, they're all retired um, it's just a good example of what we can do with the genetics. We now, we've had different geneticists retire. Um, and so our geneticist today is very into gene sequencing and finding out answers to stuff. So we're zeroing in on some of the cancers that we see uh, and studying that because we don't, we don't want to just help ourselves. We want to help people from other schools and, and, and for the health of dogs around the world. All right, hop to us, um, bring us up into, I think, two years ago, a little over two years ago, March. Uh, well, I'll, I'll go back to December 2019. There was this rage on the news about this stupid virus in China we were hearing about. And our, our leadership team here meets on a weekly basis. And, and I think it was December of 19 that we started hearing about uh, COVID, the coronavirus, wondering if it was going to come here and affect us. And as time went on, um, week to week, we started paying more and more attention to it. In February of 2020, we, we went, whoa, sounds like it's really coming. And we had a class here uh, end of February into March of 2020. And that class uh, was in full session when Everything went to pot in the world, as everyone knows. Uh, everything exploded. I think, uh, I, I tell everybody, I think I was up speaking to that class every day for a week before they finally went home because our game plan kept changing. We had plans, but as things heated up um, in the environment, I think we had 22 or 24 students in residence and we had four Canadians here. We're a North American organization. and I was starting to worry that we weren't, if, if, if they were going to shut down borders, I was worried we weren't going to get Canadians out of here. And I laugh about it now today because it's like, of course, they're going to let them go home because we know better now. But at the time, nobody knew anything about this. We got the, the class completely trained, sent them home. Um, I think on St. Patrick's Day, we're there about 17th or 18th of March. 
and we sent our staff home other than the people who have to care for dogs. We, the, the kennel staff was here uh, and our breeding station staff kept working. We had 203, that's 203 dogs here on campus. And we sent everybody home and we figured we'd be back in two weeks. <laughs> and, you know, we all laugh about it now. And, you know, two weeks turned into a little over three months and our staff was paid throughout the whole, the whole pandemic. We, we realized we couldn't afford to replace anybody. So we paid everybody out through the whole thing. We also realized that we couldn't warehouse dogs on campus and not train them, that it just wasn't fair to have them live in kennels with no other stimulation other than play yards. And, and as, as good as that is, it's not right. So we came up with a plan to re, rehome all the dogs in training and on campus back to puppy raisers and staff and, and volunteers. And in 10 business days, we got 203 dogs rehomed so that the kennel staff would, would go home and stay home as well. We stopped breeding dogs during the times, only the times that we did not have classes because we knew we could stretch the inventory of dogs that was, was born, raised, some trained, some not trained yet. But we knew that, that if we weren't having classes for as many months as we didn't have classes, we just wouldn't breed. And then we would catch up again once, once we started having classes again. We started bringing dogs back to campus on July 6th of 2020 and we brought the most trained dogs back first. In other words, the dogs that were next up to the plate before the pandemic hit, supposed to be matched, came back first so that they could have their, their veterinary clearances, go back to work and be matched six months, six weeks later, the end of August is when we had our first class. Every week we bought, brought another group of dogs back until we were back to the original 203 on campus. and. We resumed training classes the end of August, 2020. We started amazing protocols. Uh, we had, I think what started out, I'm gonna get my numbers wrong now because I, just because things have progressed so much. I think we had a 13 page document that's now more than twice that long on, on COVID protocols. And we spaced everybody six feet apart in the dining room, took away all table coverings so that we could wash tables down. And we did half capacity, very small capacities of class. I shouldn't even say half. Yeah, it was half. But we started with people that we could drive in. Remember, there was no vaccines then. So people quarantined at home. Uh, once we were able to start flying people, we quarantined some people here in Morristown at our expense. We had a 14-day quarantine in a, in a ho local hotel. And once we started being able to have vaccine widespread uh, for available for people, we made the decision to uh, prioritize folks who are, are vaccinated um, because we just couldn't keep up the expense of quarantining people for two weeks in a hotel in addition to having full classes again. So we've gone through all these iter iterations where we've served um, just. Once this, once this class uh, graduates, we will have served just under 300 students um, since the pandemic. Next month will push us over the 300 mark. And we would normally serve 250 to 260 a year. We've been 
pretty much half capacity up until the last three months. This is our third class of, of full capacity. I'm knocking on wood. As I say that we haven't had any ca uh, cases of COVID on campus um, that would, would in class that would paralyze us a little bit. Uh, it would certainly mean if somebody got sick that they wouldn't be able to finish the program because they'd, they'd lose a minimum of five days and there's not time to make up that. Um, in a, in a class period. And then you have to worry about other people getting it and so on. We recognize that, you know, this, this virus is going to go on and, and probably be more as common as the common cold, but we're still going to do everything we can to make it right over time. Um, I think Melissa gave really up good updates about advocacy stuff. I, I will say for, I forgot to say it on our last update call, um, our longtime director of canine medicine, Dr. Holly, Dr. Dolores Holly retired um, a couple months ago. And uh, Dr. Kyle Quigley is the new director of canine medicine and genetics. He works with our geneticist, uh, Katie, Dr. Katie Evans. She's also a veterinarian, by the way, a, a veterinary geneticist. So uh, she's really incredible. Um, and it's our hope, um, it's our plan, um, I guess I have to say hope um, because we can plan all we want, but we we hope to continue having full classes now. Kind of kind of feel like right now that we are prepared for anything to come at us um, with the pandemic. We do um, ask people to everybody tests within 72 hours of traveling here. We ask people to travel with a mask on, and we mask for the first week of class, figuring it that if anybody was um, unfortunate enough to come in contact with somebody while flying that might be able to might transmit the virus to them that they'd have some protection. So we get through the first week of class and if nobody's symptomatic, we take the take the masks off with with more comfort. So golly, I think that's all I had to say and I don't know whether we're able to take are we able to take questions? Well, did, did you say if I missed it or if you didn't plan did you want to say anything about good maps or is that not? Oh sorry. No, uh, why don't you, Melissa, you talk about good maps. Go for it. Okay, so um, you all may know, may have heard of good maps. It's um, wayfinding technology. You know, there are a number of GPS um, apps and options out there for those of us who are blind or have low vision. But the really cool thing about good maps is that it has indoor wayfinding technology through the use of beacons and LIDAR. And I, I do not completely understand how that works. I just know what it's like to be an end user of that. And so one of the things that the, we've been mentioning, I know that this, this sort of audience here expands beyond our graduates, but we have, we have notified our graduates that we were working on having good maps available at the seeing eye um, in certain areas that are available to students. And so we continue to work on that. And we're at a point where we're feeling really good about where things are with, with that technology. You know, it, it takes some tweaking to get indoor beacons working right, especially in, in tight spaces like what we have at the seeing eye. So, um, you know, I think sometimes it works really well in, in more open spaces, I'm, I'm told. But, but anyway, so we are, we have been testing it um, and we are ready. We are talking about um, in the next class, 
giving students the opportunity to beta test it and get a better sense of how it's working on a broader scale. We, and Dave should probably speak to this more than I can, but our goal is not to have it available so that people can be focused on a GPS and, and which offices are where at the seeing eye and dining room and so on and so forth while they are working their dogs. Because the focus when you're here, um, if you come to us, is to learn how to, to work with your dog, communicate with your dog, bond with your dog. But those two days before you're actually matched with your dog, that, that's your opportunity with your cane um, to become more oriented to the space that you're in so that you can give your dog meaningful directions about where to go to the dining room, your, the lobby, you know, your room, the common lounge, wherever the student lectures are, um, so on and so forth, and entrances and stairwells, the park area. Um, but good maps can be of assistance providing more information about what is where and routes to get to different places so that people have a level of familiarity with it before they get their dog and more information than might have been available before so we're really excited about this technology and we'll we'll see how things shake out i don't know dave did you want to say anything you nailed about it? it perfect all right perfect. um cool we have Probably about 10 minutes for questions. If anybody has any questions, um, we'd be happy to answer those. And if not, then we could end early. We've got at least one hand up if you'd like me to. Yeah. Zoom user. I was wondering about, I'm really enjoyed this presentation. Thank you very much. I was wondering about the advocacy sphere. What would you say? is the percentage, if you can kind of stick one on, of the amount of um, problems with access which guide dog handlers are, are having? In other words, is, is there any kind of percentage that has been figured out? It would be really hard to do that as to what percentage of people have any kind of access difficulties Thank you very much. Well, I think that's a fantastic question. And no, I can't, I can't offer you uh, percentages. What I can tell you is that I hear a lot about rideshare denials, unfortunately. Um, and that that is continuing to be a thing that we hear more and more about now that this the, you know, I know that um, ACB is doing some work too to learn about what ride shares are doing to our community in terms of discrimination. But NFB had sued um, Uber and Lyft and there were three year monitoring periods um, as a result of the settlement agreements. And so um, now that those monitoring periods are over, they're kind of playing, the ride shares are kind of playing fast and loose again with their policies and there, there has been a steep increase in rideshare denials. So that is one thing that I hear a lot about. Then, and then of course, one thing that's pretty prevalent right now is questions, concerns, and misunderstandings about the implementation of the new Department of Transportation regulations, right? So we have situations where either people are discriminated against because an airline didn't apply it properly, or people who just simply don't understand what their obligations are and why, and because there is a lot to it. 
And then the other thing that will happen occasionally is I will notice themes. And I don't know why this happens out there in the universe, but I might say to Dave, it's housing week because I might get three people contacting me saying, yeah, my landlord's giving me a hard time about my dog and they want you know, my firstborn child in order for me to move in here with my dog, what do I do? I'll get three of those in a week. And then maybe like next week, I'll get three people asking me about their dog in the workplace. So I've noticed these, these groupings that seem to take place. And I don't think there's any, anything to that other than randomness, but those themes do pop out occasionally. How about businesses like restaurants and theaters? Oh, and get that. You know, we definitely get that occasionally. I just um, and I've spoken to somebody this week who is really tired of, you know, getting denied, getting kind of guff from small hotels that don't know um, what their obligations are and what they're allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do. So that definitely still occurs on a, you know, on a regular basis. But I think um, the biggest ones I'm seeing right now are ride share and confusion about air travel. Thank you. Yeah, you definitely still get your run-of-the-mill restaurant, store, that kind of thing. That That's not going away, unfortunately. Okay, next is Desi. You should be able to unmute. Nellie, you will be next. Yes, I, I think I'm unmuted, Brad. Thanks. So my question is for Dave. I'm um, a proud graduate of the CNI. I was in the February 2020 class, and um, <laughs> not the one that got out in March, but the one right before that. And... Um, Unfortunately, my situation didn't work out and I'm hoping to come back soon. But my real question um, is about the Whippany house, the Whippany property. I'm a real history buff, particularly when it comes to um, the seeing eye, because I just find all of it so fascinating. And mm-hmm. uh, when I was there in class, I got to um, touch a replica of of the original harness that Lucas was kind enough to show me, but mm-hmm. I'm curious to know, is the Whippany house still in existence or was that? Torn I wish. Down? Oh, yeah. I wish. No, it became a Verizon property. They tore it down. I never oh, got wow. to see it. There's a painting of it in the, uh, in our Ranger dining room above the fireplace. Mm. And, the door to the main house there is preserved in the Mars Frank dining room and the door is easily five feet wide and close to eight feet tall, huge Torian oak door. It's amazing. And Mm. it was preserved with the handle against the wall there because so many people went through that door with their dogs that that we kept it. Yeah. Oh, that's really, that's neat. So I, I wish I knew more about the Whippany property. I've, I I think there's a historical marker there. And, you know, mm-hmm. for all the years, I'm, I'm 38 years here, and I've never driven down there myself to, to see if where it was. Wow. Well, wow. so you need to make that little field trip, Dave. <laughs> I do. Yeah, maybe tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. All right. Thank you so much. Okay, Nellie, you should be able to unmute. Hi, this is Nellie Emerson, and thank you so much for this presentation. This is very informative. Um, I am very interested in um, uh, the work that uh, CNI is doing with the uh, geneticist and, um, you know, being able to track down um, uh, health conditions. And also, I'm interested in the uh, uh, genetic, um, you know, selection of the uh, 
uh, smaller sizes of the uh, of the breeds of the dogs. I'm not sure exactly what your question is, Nellie. I understand. Well, that basically, my question is, um, you know, I'm I'm asking um, about uh, how did the seeing eye come about the um, working with the geneticists on the sizes of the breeds of dogs, okay. yeah, yeah. and then also about. Um, the um, you know whatever research is being done uh, on cancer, which seems to be really prevalent. So the the size selection um, and you're talking about the size of the animals um, because we don't want these giant dogs that don't fit under public transportation seats and everything um, was part of our estimated breeding values. And if you select, I always I always use the same example um, when I tell the story about the the estimated breeding values. If we wanted to select for dogs that are odd eyed, meaning had one blue eye and one brown eye, it's pretty rare. Um, we would select all parents that had one blue eye and one brown eye. And we we and if we couldn't get all those, we might select some blue eyed ones too. But we would give give the breeding value a 10 to the ones that had odd eyes and, and maybe an eight or a six to the ones that had blue eyes. And eventually by, by selecting for that, we would get all odd-eyed dogs with the number 10 number. And, and we've, we've gotten that way. With, with the size of the animal, with the size of the dog, you can't always control that trait as much. We, you know, you can whittle it down, but you can have a litter with a lot of little puppies and then one big galumpus dog in the litter too. But, but you can select for size and, and it's probably not our most important trait to, to select for, but, but, it's, but that's how it was done. When it comes to the, the, the cancer that we're most interested in is the least studied really, I think, and I, Katie is zeroing in on it and it's hemangiosarcoma, which is a blood cancer and it's in all the- Yes, I've use. lost a dog to hemangiosarcoma and, and uh, it is horrendous. Yep, and it's, it's in- most every breed of dog, um, but it's, it is definitely prevalent in the breeds we use. And there's, there can be some warning that it's coming on, but usually very little or no treatment. I mean, some veterinarians will try and treat a dog for it or, or try and talk you into a very expensive surgery to cure it. But really there's, I'm not, I can't go in depth because I'm running out of time. I understand. Um, I know there's really no cure. Yeah. yeah. Oh, there's no cure, but, but if we could identify it and remove the gene, that's, that's the idea is we'd like yes. to find, through the gene sequencing, um, find out what gene it is that produces it and make sure we don't produce it again. The, when, when it comes to things like, I can better talk about something that I do know something about, which was the star darts. Um, we had no affected dogs in breeding uh, or well, there was one dog that was a breeder that was affected and her two offspring were pulled out. But if you have affected animals, you know, you can, you have to breed them to another affected animal or to a carrier in order to produce mm -hmm. the disease. And we're free of it. Now we, we know we're free of it. We'll not never have the problem because, you know, because of the genetics that we have and the DNA that we have. Um, and we were, among the luckiest of schools, there are other schools that are just not fortunate with this. It's really tragic. So, thank you. You're welcome. I, I'm thinking we're all very much.
And um, if you have a question that we didn't address, send it to um, Chelsea. Yeah, send it to me. <laughs> uh, and so you can reach us by phone at 800 539 4425. And then uh, if you want to check out our website, uh, website is seeing I S E E I N G E Y E dot org. Um, and if you do have a specific question and, and want to address it, um, you can definitely email me and I will answer your question if I can or forward it on to a, a better a better person. Yeah, um, you and, can also take questions at info at cni.org and we can distribute yep. it anybody who could best answer it. Absolutely. So thank you all so very and, and much. And if you want to take a look at the access, you know, advocacy related stuff on our website. It's just seeingeye.org, like Chelsea said, only you add slash access and it'll take you right there. Fantastic. Um, and if anybody is going to be actually in Omaha at convention, uh, we will be there live and in person. So uh, come see us. We will be in the exhibit hall at lucky number booth 13. So mm-hmm. thank you all. Woo-hoo. <laughs>